Good morning, brothers and sisters. My name uh, is Chris Kinsley. As Shannon said earlier, I am one of the staff members and pastors over at the Church of Brick Hills. And so I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters there this morning. We, as a faith family, are so privileged to pray for you regularly, for your pastors, and are so thankful for you as a church, for all the different ministry that you accomplish with one another and also here within our city and around the world. And so it's such a privilege to be able to be here with you this morning. And I'm excited to be here, one, just because I've never had the chance to be able to be here before. You know, normally on Sundays I have responsibilities taken up at our own church, so I'm excited to be able to be here with you. But also just because of how dear the Vardens are to each member of our family, we we uh, are so thankful for them and their friendship with us. But then I'm also excited to be able to be here with us because of the particular text that we'll be looking at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I do want to ask you to open those up to the book of Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be following along there with what the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote there to the church in Ephesus, but then also what he is writing to us today as we prepare to read these words. And as we do, we'll see a lot of different things that the Apostle Paul is desiring to teach us as God's church. And one of the reasons why I love this text is because of some answers that it gives us to some pretty big questions that everyone has in life. You know, one just being like, why are we here? Why do we exist? Why has God made us? And Ephesians 2 gives us some unique answers to that question. So if you will, let's begin looking at that. As you, if you will, follow along with me as I read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and like the rest of and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, right there in verse 10, we begin to get a little bit part of that answer of why we're here, why we exist, why God has made us. It's there as Paul writes that we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. God has made us to do good works. And to some of us, that message is warning, that sounds like the best news that you could have gotten when you walked in. Like you get really, you want to do good, you want to do better, you want to be better, you want to be all that God has made you to be. So hearing he's made you to do good, that sounds good. And all you want to do is like, you just want the, like, well, what is it? What are the good works? Like, let me have them. I'm going to write them down right here and I'll get to doing them right away. Because you're that type of person that's kind of like my wife and daughter are. Like we're, it is beginning to wrap up the summer. 
My wife's a teacher. My daughter's going to eighth grade. So they're looking forward to getting like their calendars done, like getting everything planned out, knowing what's expected and when, when assignments are due, when practices are happening, where we need to be. And they'll get it all written down. And some of you are like that, too. In fact, some of you maybe you begin each year by buying a new yearly calendar, a yearly planner. You still buy it in physical form. You don't do it on your phone because you like to make that to-do list for each day. And then as you go throughout your day, you like to check off that list. And boy, does that feel good. And if something comes up that you weren't planning to do that day, you quickly go to your calendar and you write it down so that you can then check it off. Because boy, does that feel good. Like, that's what you want. Like, it's, it sounds good. God wants you to do good works. Great. Give me the list of good works. I'm going to write them down and I'll get to checking them off just as soon as we walk out of here this morning. But for others of us, that doesn't sound that great. Like, we don't do good with keeping up with the list. That seems kind of overwhelming. Like, we're doing good just to kind of get through our day each day. The idea of having a list of things that God's expecting us, that the creator, the ruler of the entire universe is expecting us to do, that can seem kind of overwhelming for us. It doesn't seem like something that we're going to be real jazzed about. But when Paul is writing here about the good works that God has made for us to do, that he created us to do, but that he prepared for us beforehand, it's not a list that Paul has in mind, because what God made us for is not a list. Rather, God has made us for a life. And specifically, we need to understand that God has made us for life with him. God has made us for life with him. We see this back in the beginning of scriptures. In the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, as God is creating everything, there at the pinnacle of creation, he creates Adam and Eve, he creates the first man and the first woman. There with Adam, as he forms him out of the dust of the ground, he literally breathes life into him. And why does he do this? Why does he give man and woman life? So that they can be there in the garden, not to enjoy all the different fruits or to play with all the different animals or even hang out and enjoy the presence and the friendship and the fellowship and the relationship with one another. But it's so that they can enjoy time with him. God, in the over outpouring abundance of his love, created man and woman so that he could love them, but also that they could love him in return so we could enjoy relationship with him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism actually begins that way with asking the question, well, what is the chief end of man? And the answer that it, of course, gives is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's true there in the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2. It's true there in the garden, but it's also true for us today. If we think about what a good life in this world really looks like, it looks like one that is lived with God and fellowship with Him. In fact, that's ultimately why Jesus came, because we are made for life with Him. And the book of John, in John chapter 10, verse 10, he actually makes this abundantly clear, contrasting himself with the enemy, with the thief. As he says that I came, Jesus talking about himself, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In other words, I came so that you may have life and have it abundantly, because that's what you were made for, life with God. But of course, if we are made for life with him, To begin with, it kind of begs the question then, well, why did Jesus have to come so that we could have life and have life that is abundant? While Paul answers that here, that's how he begins 
these verses in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 1, we read that we were dead. We were dead. We were cut off from our life with God. Why? Why were we dead? Because of our trespasses, our sins, all the many ways in which that we had disobeyed the will of God, that we had not lived the life that he had created us for. Now, that's a concept that we're all pretty much familiar with. We know from the book of Romans that Paul wrote that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And we know that the wages of those sin, in Romans 6.23, that the wages of that sin is death. We know that. But when Paul writes about the wages of sin being death, isn't he talking about the physical death that we die here on earth? Or is it that he has in mind the eternal spiritual reality that exists for everyone that dies apart from God, that they are then sentenced to eternal death? Isn't that what Paul has in mind? Well, certainly he does. I mean, after all, he he wrote the book of Romans. But here in Ephesians, it seems that he's not just thinking about a future physical reality. He's not just thinking about a potential spiritual reality. As he's talking about something in the present Something that's been true for readers now. That now you were dead in your trespasses in sins. This is true for us. There was a time in our lives that we, when we were apart from Christ, that we were dead in our trespasses in sins. Not something we're going to experience in the future physically here on earth. Not something we're going to potentially experience in the future. We do not put our faith in Christ, but something that was true for us now, because of our sins, we were dead. Now, of course, you may hear that, and you may kind of like look around at yourself, right? Give yourself a good pat down, like take some breaths, maybe check the old pulse, and come to the conclusion, but wait a minute, I'm not dead, I'm alive. And of course, you'd be correct, but, but Paul knew that, because look at how he continues. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. So you were walking. You were living. But in your life, what you were doing, what you were walking in, were your trespasses and your sins. And the result is that you were as good as dead. There's no amount of living that you could do to change that. Why? Again, because of what Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. This is what you're going to get for the way that you are living, for the way that you are walking. And all of our living in a sinful state, there's nothing that we could do to actually bring about life for ourselves. There's been a point in my life, um, I'd like to consider it in the past, but where I was a little weirdly obsessed with zombie movies. I don't know if any of y'all are familiar with the concept of a zombie. It's the walking dead. The zombie is someone who they're kind of shambling around, walking around, making noises, coming after people. But really, they're dead. There's no real life to them. And as they're walking around, eventually they're just going to rot away. And that's a picture of what it looks like for us and what Paul is describing here. That yes, you are walking But you were basically the walking dead. You were basically rotting away from the inside out because of the sin that existed in your heart. And there was nothing that you could do to solve that for yourself. And the reality is is that's not just a truth for each of us. It's a truth for everyone. For everyone who exists in this world. For everyone who has ever existed in this world. For everyone who will exist. Why? Because it's the course of this world. You walked 
following the course of this world, Paul says. Well, it wasn't always the course of this world. When God created Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2 and put them in the garden, sin wasn't the course of this world. They walked in life with him. But what changed? Of course, Genesis 3 changed. Sin entered the world. They disobeyed God's command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And who was there with them in Genesis 3, leading the way? The serpent, the enemy of God, Satan, the one that Paul then describes here as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That this head and charge demon, he is at work. Just as he is at work in Genesis 3, he is at work in our world today. And it's not good work. His purpose is to bring about disobedience, to bring about sin, trespasses against God. And why? Because he wants us dead. That's the desire of Satan. That's the desire of the enemy of God. He wants us dead, living dead. Of course, God wants something different. So before we throw a pity party for ourselves a little too quickly, we have to see that not only are we dead in our sins because Satan has led the way for that to be the ways of this world in which we walk, but we also have to admit that the reason that we are living in death is because it's what we wanted to. Paul says that here. He says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The passions of our flesh, the desires of our body and our mind, that we wanted sin. We wanted disobedience. Similar how Adam and Eve looked at that fruit and they desired to eat it. We are faced with temptations in our lives And we have to be able to admit to ourselves that we want to sin. You see, the reason why is because that's who we are. Dead in our sins. The late theologian R.C. Sproul said it this way, that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We're incapable of doing good work. In our living dead state, we might stumble around in such a way that it looks like that we have life, but that's not What's going, we're never going to progress in a positive direction. The only trajectory that our lives can head in, the only direction in which we can go, is a state in which the outcome is ultimately eternal death, an eternal experience of what our present spiritual reality really is. And the reason why is because that's what we deserve. That's why Paul describes us as children under wrath. Under God's anger, God's punishment. Now, we don't like the sound of that when it's applied to us. You know, we're kind of fine with the concept of wrath when we think about it applied to someone else. After all, we want justice. We can hear about wrongs committed in this world, and we want the people who do the wrongdoing to pay. We want them to be punished. We want there to be restitution for the victims. We want justice. Just not if we're the ones that deserve it. But we are children under wrath when we, are, when we are in our walking dead state, living in our sin. God made us for life with him, but we've chosen his wrath 
instead of his love. And there's nothing we can do about it. Whenever you hear about someone mention us being in need of a Savior, this is what they're talking about. Like I think about, again, in the book of Romans, when Paul writes in Romans 7, kind of describing the war uh, that the Spirit rages against the flesh within us. And he wraps up that chapter, Romans 7, 24, with this question, writing, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer, of course, is God. God, he made us for life with him. But we chose death apart from him in our sins. The problem we couldn't fix for ourselves. But thankfully we get here and we see God come into the picture. Because not only has God made us for life with him, but he then comes into our present state, being dead in our sins, and he makes us alive with Christ. He makes us alive with Christ. And the drama that's playing out in Ephesians chapter 2, in those first three verses, there's only two characters. There's us and there's Satan. But then when we get to verse 4, we read those glorious words. But God. God enters the story. And when he comes into the story, he brings everything about him that is good. He brings his mercy and he brings his grace and he brings his love. And we need to make sure that we understand what exactly we mean by those characteristics. What does it mean that God is merciful, that God has mercy? What does it mean that God is gracious, that he exhibits grace, that he demonstrates grace? What does it mean that God is loving? Well, to give us some simplistic definitions, let's think about it this way. Mercy, one way that it can be defined is mercy is not getting the punishment that you deserve. So mercy is not getting punishment you deserve. Grace, on the other hand, grace is getting the blessing that you don't deserve. So sometimes we can use those words interchangeably, but they really mean two different things. Mercy, not getting the punishment that you do deserve. Grace, getting the blessing that you don't deserve. Okay, think about it this way. Uh, my son Haven's sitting right down here on the front row. He's almost 10 years old. And any of you have ever lived with an almost 10-year-old boy, you know that you never have any problem with getting them to clean their rooms. Okay, that's never an issue whatsoever. But for the sake of illustration, let's just think that maybe that is an issue. That sometimes it can be hard to get your almost 10-year-old boy to clean your room. So let's say that one day I come to Haven and I say, Haven, I need you to go clean your room. That's what I want you to do. I want you to go clean your room. And he says, yes, sir, because he's a very respectful young man. And he says, yes, sir, and starts to go up the stairs. I say, wait, wait, Haven, I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. I want you to go clean your room. That means all your clothes put up, all your toys put away, all the drawers closed, not everything just shoved under the bed or in the closet, everything in its space. Okay, that's what I need you to do. Do you understand? And he says, yes, sir, I understand. I say, okay, now, Haven, listen to me, son. I want you to go clean your room, but if you don't do it, there's going to be a punishment. Do you understand? And Haven says, yes, sir. I say, great, go for it. And he runs upstairs and he's up there and I can hear stuff happening for a while and it goes on. But, you know, after a while, I then call up to him, Haven. He says, yes, sir. I say, will you come here? And Haven comes down the stairs. I say, Haven, have you cleaned your room? And he just kind of looks at me. Say, Haven, let me ask you again, have you cleaned your room? 
he says, no, sir. I said, Haven, what have you been doing? He said, oh, I've just been playing. Oh, so you've been doing what you wanted to do instead of what I told you to do. Yes, sir. Haven, what does that mean you deserve? And Haven says, a punishment. I say, yep, that's right. Now, in that moment, if I give Haven a punishment, if I ground him, if I take away device time, whatever the punishment might be, I'm completely justified in my response, right? I told him to do something. I set forth what the expectations were to make sure that he understood what the the consequences would be. He did not follow through. Therefore, the punishment is deserved, and I'm completely just in offering that punishment. But in that moment, what if instead I say, that's okay, buddy, I forgive you. I'm not going to give you a punishment. That's mercy. Now, what if not only do I say, that's okay, buddy, I forgive you. I'm not going to give you a punishment. I say, in fact, let's go up there. I'll go ahead and clean your room for you. And then let's go to Brewster's and get chocolate and peanut butter milkshakes. How does that sound? And Haven's like, yes, that sounds awesome. And that's what we do. That's grace. Mercy is the forgiveness and not getting the punishment. Grace is the getting the job done because I step in and do it myself and then taking him for a reward, for a blessing. Why would I do that? I'm completely justified in offering Haven the punishment. Why would I give him the forgiveness and not the punishment? Why would I give him the blessing that he completely doesn't deserve? There's one reason and one reason only. It's because I love Haven. I want him to be disciplined. I want him to do the right thing. But I also want times where I can give him mercy, where I can show him forgiveness, where I can bless him, not because of what he's done, not because of who he is, but because of who I am, his dad. And I love him. And I want to give him chocolate and peanut butter milkshakes more than I want to give him a punishment. That's what I want in that moment. That's grace and mercy driven by love. And if I can do that for my son Haven, how much more does God do that for each and every single one of us? He is our heavenly father, overflowing with an abundant love for us. He's completely justified and not only condemning us and making a punishment for us, but then also because of who he is, because of his good love, he comes behind and instead he has mercy on us and he blesses us in his grace. And he comes and he meets us where we are, dead and our trespasses and sins. And instead, what he does is he makes us alive in Christ. Even while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God, because of his great love for you, made you alive together with Christ. Now think about some of the responses again that we have to God's wrath toward us. We don't like the sound of it. We don't like the feel of it. Like it seems harsh and hard and horrible. And that's true. But when I think about us having kind of those reactions to God's wrath, I think about us saying that kind of thing to Jesus. Jesus, man, I don't, this, God's wrath idea, this seems like a lot. It's harsh. It's horrible. It's, it's a hard thing for us. And I think picture Jesus looking back at us and say, yeah, you're telling me. Because you see, there was still justice to be given in response to our sin. The wages of sin was still death. And so Jesus stepped in. That's how he came in order to give us life so that we could have life and have life abundantly. He took our punishment. He took God's wrath. He took our place. And there on the cross, 
He died. He took the wages of sin. But of course, he didn't stay dead there, right? He rose from the grave. And just before Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians 1, Paul describes what that looked like for God as he's praying for the church at Ephesus there. And he's asking God for them to be able to see and to understand things about God. One of the things that he wants them to understand is the power of God that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, his fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, God the Father raised God the Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, but it didn't stop there. He then raised him up to the heavens, to his right hand, to rule with authority over everything and everyone for all eternity. He rules over this world whose ways are the sins and trespasses. He reigns over the enemy, Satan, the one to lead us to obedience. He has authority over us, but not to subjugate us, not to imprison us, not to oppress us. He has authority over us in order to free us, to make us alive again. And then in Ephesians 2, Paul then describes what God does even beyond that. After making us alive, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God doesn't treat us as children under wrath. He treats us as he treated his son when he raised him from the dead to return him to life. As he raises us from the death and our sins and he gives us new life in Christ He treats us like his son, like children under his mercy, his grace, his love, his life, and raises us up with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places. What Paul is writing about here, it's a past event. It's something that has already happened in the lives of his readers there in Ephesus, but that has lasting, ongoing effects in their lives. God has not only made them alive, They are now alive, and God is continuing to give them life, to sustain them for the life, the full life that he desired for them, that he made us for, and that he sent Jesus so that we could have. But we don't want to move past this right now without acknowledging that there may be some of us here today who don't yet have this life. We may still be dead and our trespasses and sins. Sir, we're shambling around with some semblance of life, but not the life that God made us for. But it can be yours today. As Paul writes, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. You can be given life in Christ today. How? Through faith. By believing and trusting, repenting and receiving. You see, and faith isn't, it's not something that we bring to the table. Just like his grace, just like God's mercy and love, like his salvation, like this life he gives us, it's a gift. Faith is a gift. There's nothing we can do to earn this gift. We don't do something like to get on his nice list in order for him to bless us in this way. He just freely offers it to us if we will receive it. So will you receive it today? 
We'll repent and believe. What that means is just to turn away from your sin. Turn away from the desires of your flesh and turn to Jesus. Trust him that he is who he says he is, that he is the son of God, that he came and paid the penalty for your sins and that he can and will give you new life today. And know why he does this, not because of what we do, not because of who we are, not because of some potential that he sees within us. No, he does this for us because it's who he is. It's according to his rule. It's because of what, it's what he desires. And also, as Paul writes it, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So how does he do that? How does God display the riches of his mercy and kindness? How does he reveal that, show that to the world around us? Well, it's because the life that he gives us is not a one-time deal. It's not just something that happens then and that's it. It's because of how he continues to work in us, the life he continues to give us, and to produce fruit through his work in us. Because not only has God made us for life with him, which means that he made us alive together in Christ, but God has made us for good works. That's what we find when we come back to verse 10 here of Ephesians 2. That we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Understanding what this means begins with understanding who we are now that we are alive in Christ. Paul describes this as his workmanship. The Greek word that's used there is poema. It's a word that means masterpiece. Think about the greatest works of art or architecture or things that exist in this world, the masterpieces of these great artisans. That's the picture that is Paul is using here of who we are in relation to God, that out of all creation, we are his masterpiece. But we're not his masterpiece because of who he made back in Genesis 1 and 2. But yes, man and woman, humankind, they're the pinnacle of all creation. But that's not what makes us his masterpiece. No, we're his masterpiece because of how Paul describes us in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes that, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, his, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are his masterpiece, not because of who he made humankind to be in Genesis 1 and 2. We are his masterpiece because of who he has made us now. New creations made alive together with Christ and made for good works. He's already made it clear that the good that we do in this world, it doesn't earn us salvation. It doesn't make God love us anymore. It doesn't make him want to be more gracious to us or more merciful to us. He is already fully merciful and gracious and loving toward us. Our good works don't earn anything because we're dead, right? In our sins and trespasses. We can't do any good. It's never going to be enough. Our good works don't even pay God back for the work that he does in us because it's a gift. When he gives us life, it's a gift that he freely gives to us because of his mercy and his grace and his love. No, our good works, rather, they're simply outward signs of an inward reality. 
They demonstrate to the world around us, but they also demonstrate to ourselves we're no longer dead. We're alive. We no longer walk according to the ways of this world. We now walk according to the ways of God. We are no longer led toward disobedience by the enemy, but we are led to obedience through the working of God's Spirit within us. We're no longer sinners. We're saints. We're no longer bad. We're now good. We live according to God's ways, to His rule, to what He desires. And our good works, they result from His good work in us and through us. It's, it's the good life that He has made us for. Way back in Genesis 1 and 2, to enjoy Him forever. It's to live according to the things that He desires. That's the life that He's always made us for. But He had to give us new life for us to fully experience it because of the sin that had been at work in us. And now each of us, we have a divine calling on our lives to follow Christ and to do good because he's prepared that good for us to do so that the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us can be demonstrated, not just for our benefit, but also for the benefit of others. I think about what Jesus taught in part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He said, you are the light of the world. And skipping just a couple of verses, he says, so let your light shine before others so that, they, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, God has prepared good works for us ahead of time. One, for his glory. To give him the glory that he alone deserves. Two, for our good. Because it's the life that he made us for. But also, he's created good works ahead of time for us to do for the good of others. So that they too might be made alive together with Christ. All we have to do is the good work he's prepared to walk in them as we walk with him. So let's do good works. Let's do them. But then there's some of you again, you go back to the initial question. Okay, well, great. Give them to me. I'm ready now. Now can we have the list? Is this the time? We don't have time to do that. But I want to encourage you with how do you, how do you find what these good works are? How do you know what the list is? Well, I would say really simply, like, look here. Look in the Bible. Look in God's word. It's full of them. God's Word, of course, is way more than just a rule book. It's way more than just a list of commands. It's way more than just a list of good things for us to do. It's a story of God and His people. But within that story, we discover a lot of good that He does toward us and a lot of good that He calls us to do toward others. So as you read God's Word, especially in the New Testament, pay attention to all the one another's that come up. Love one another. Serve one another, honor one another, bear one another's burdens, be patient with one another, care for one another. Pay attention when you see those. If you want a list, begin to jot those down or just Google Bible one another's. A great list is going to come up for you and you can devote your entire life to living those out and you'll be in super good shape. Read the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts and pay careful attention to how the people of God act the things that they do, and then do those things with one another, with your neighbors, with people around the world. Listen 
as you read Scripture, to what the Holy Spirit helps you notice. What He draws your attention to. Something that stirs something inside you. A desire to obey something that you've read and then do it. Obey. Do that good. The good life that we live with God, it's one that's marked by good works because that's who He is. He is good. So good. And because that's what He does. He's in the business of doing good work in us and through us. And so the logic then follows that as we follow him, he would lead us to do good work too, to give him the glory, to grow us, to be more and more like his son, and to show others how good he really is and how they too can know his goodness, his mercy, his grace, and his love, how they too can know the full life he made them for, of how they too can be made alive together with his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So as a final encouragement, let's not only do good, but as we do, let's also be sure that we use our words and we tell others why we are doing the good that we do. Let's tell others of the the new life that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And let's tell others how that new life can be theirs too. We're surrounded by people looking for the good life. The good life in our world. And they'll never find it in their possessions. And they'll never find it in their vacations. And they'll never find it in their jobs. And they'll never find it in their friends. They'll never find it in the ways of this world. Because the good life that they've been made for can only be found in Jesus Christ. So let's introduce them to him. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for the gift of this day. We praise you for the gift of your word. And I especially praise you and thank you for my brothers and sisters here at Philadelphia, for the great love that you have for them, for the mercy and grace that you have shown them, for the new life that you have given them. And we thank you for the reminder that you've given us this morning, that in that new life you've prepared good works for us to do. And so, Lord, we ask you to, as we follow after you, to lead us to those good works, to lead us to see them in your word, at least to put them into practice, to spur one another on to love and good works. For you, yes, but also for one another, for the world around us that we might grow more and more into the image of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and so that more and more people around us might see our good works, give you the glory you alone deserve, and find the new life that they can have through faith in Christ alone. I ask you to use each of us to do that, to grow your people, to grow your family, in us and through us. We ask it, of course, in the name of of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.